Welcome to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience Podcast. Join Danny on a journey through the historical island of Ireland, its people and the wild Atlantic way, which is Ireland's last frontier. Experience the music and the culture that makes up the longest coastal driving route in the world. Now, please welcome your host, Danny Houlihan. Curran Forte to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience Show. I hope you're all safe and well. In this episode, I will travel back to Palm Sunday, 5th of April 1914, and to the newly built Universal Radio Syndicate's wireless station in Ballybunion, North Kerry, and the events that surrounded that famous day. The sun rose over Canucanore Hill as the stream of local workers made their way by foot and bike to the powerhouse at the Ballybunion wireless station, which was recently constructed by Universal Radio Syndicate using a call sign YXQ. This station was located on Central Road, Ballybunion, North Kerry. A beautiful day it was. Morning tea was ready at the brown wooden army billets surrounding the perimeter of the site. Climbing the 500-foot iron mast that morning and after several mugs of whiskey to prevent cold, the radio station's riggers ascended the iron mast, towering over the area of Ballybunion. Very slowly, until they arrived on the triangular platform at the top of the tower, known as the Crow's Nest. The view, as usual, was captivating, with the plains of Nor Kerry and the Shannon Way in full view. The workers continued tightening the large nuts with the use of large spanners which they had on that day. The mast was completed, and the crew on the ground were busy, finalising the bracings of the massive steel guy ropes that anchored the bases to the concrete base. However, later on in the afternoon, a storm was brewing. The animators on the 300-foot towers were now sending down readings to the transmitting station, a high increase in wind speed on the towers. This alerted the station's engineers on duty, who quickly dispatched all ground crew at YXQ to secure the massive steel tubular 500-foot tower. As the crews tirelessly tightened the mast, the wind got stronger and stronger. Their efforts were becoming futile. It was only weeks previously that the ground crews in Ballybunnen were finalising the other 300-foot towers and the tubular steel pipes of the huge 500-foot tower. West of the telegraph and transmitting building, having been brought to the site by the Lartig monorail from the station in Listowel. As the massive 500-foot tower swayed in the nighttime breeze, it cried out like a dying animal, with sounds of groans, as the pre-World War I steel pins and pipes and ropes fought the windy elements to stand defined against the North Kerry skyline. At the station house below, its frightened engineers looked on helplessly, on in horror, as the new 500-foot tubular transmitting tower swayed above them in the dark. Would it fall? Crashing on the transmitting station, with all the newly designed pioneering arc transmitters and Morse keys in position to transmit to Newcastle, New Brunswick, in the following days and weeks to Canada? No one knew. They hoped it would not happen. The northwesterly wind rose stronger to storm force as the heavy rain clouds rushed in over the Shannon Estuary towards the giant Ballybullen wireless station. The sounds of the straining steel pipes were deafening in the locality 
and heard for miles distant as the steel guy ropes and insulators clattered like castanets in the Ballybunnan skyline. One of the engineers shouted, Look out! The anchor steel is bending at the base. Sure enough, the southern anchor steel and tubular pipes were bending southwards. Again, the giant tower swayed in the tempest. Then a loud crack was heard in the station house as the southern part of the tower leaned forward only on two anchor pipes. The steel crosspins tore off each other as the 500-foot tower buckled, unable to keep upright, and began to fall in a southerly direction. The sound of the crashing tower was heard in Ballyduff and along the Shannon Estuary as a series of explosions were heard. These explosions were the porcelain insulators disintegrating over the 500 feet above the Ballybunnan skyline. The mass fell at a rapid pace, bringing with it thousands of tons of steel bars and guy ropes and rigging from 500 feet above to the ground below. The groundsmen and engineers fled in all directions as their attempts to save the massive tower were in vain. Two groundsmen took shelter in a southern wooden maintenance building but escaped with their lives as the tower crashed just feet in front of them. The engineers, such as Archie M. Stevens, and others looked on as the heap of tangled steel and rigging crumbled before their eyes. Luckily for the engineers, the masts fell in a southerly direction. Otherwise, more damage would have been done to the other 300-foot mast, which was several hundred feet west of the fall, and indeed the station or transmitting house below it. Tradition relates that the fall of the tower occurred at night time. One can just imagine the walkers frantically trying to save it, and the fact that under the cover of darkness of night with only paraffin lamps to aid their attempts. As the dawn broke, the chief engineers wired to London and reported the damage to the 500-foot mast. The reply from chief engineer was to rebuild. This time, Sir Frank Elwell's wooden lattice mast would be used and his plans. On site in Ballybunion, a meeting was held at the station house that morning and orders were dispatched to the groundsmen and tradesmen to strip the fallen mast without haste. The stricken mast lay in a southerly direction, its bent crow's nest and platform half buried up to ten feet in the sandy soil. Its upper ladder lay flat in the sandy soil. Its pulley system lay buried in the sand, just beyond the twisted platform. The area was covered with guy ropes and twisted steel and broken insulators everywhere. And in fact, this is from the pictures we have of the fall. The riggers quickly dismantled the heavy guy ropes and tethers to the mast and other towers, clearing a path for the groundsmen to commence the removal of the heavy steel tubular mast sections. First, the platform and crow's nest were stripped. Then the unbolting of the 10-foot steel pins that held the mast into position. The final phase in the operation was the removal of the steel sections from the impact area Back in the direction of the station house, the remainder of the anchor seal was still anchored to the base in front of the telegraph house. This process only took several days as the groundsmen walked around the clock to clear the area. Even at night time, there was a crew walking in the dark under paraffin lamps and the moonlight. During this process, large lengths of pine timber were obtained and brought to the station by the Lartigue Monorailway from Listole. The large lengths of pine timber were worked on at the site with the tradesmen fashioning the new lattice mast as it lay on the ground. 
The new mast had some of the old incorporated into it, as the horizontal ten-foot steel pins were reused to strengthen the new wooden mast, which proved to be a total success, and a credit to Archie M. Stevens and his crew, and Cyril Frank Elwell's design. We read in a letter of the time, dated the 8th of July 1914, by the Chief Engineer Cyril F. Elwell of the Universal Radio Syndicate Limited, to the Ballybunnan engineer Archie M. Stevens. Quote, I'm sorry to hear the anchor steel cracked. It seems rather short stuff. It also emerged that the Danes were, according to Elwell, lazy to make a new drawing of the new mast, but use one of Horse Island's plans. The letter goes on to approve of Stephen's mending of the broken anchor bar, which, according to Elwell, will hold. The rate of the erection of the new tower was commented, as with the speed it was going up. Next would be the hard work, at Transatlantic Communications with Newcastle, New Brunswick. We read in another correspondence, dated by the Managing Director, J.S. Baxendale, on the 30th of July, 1914, that the responsibility of the antenna rests with the Danes and that no other changes must be made without the approval of Copenhagen or Ericsson, who was on site at that time as an engineer. Work continued as usual, on the lattice sections of the new 500-foot tower, as it slowly rose again from its concrete base under the instruction of engineer Archie M. Stevens on Cyril F. Elwell's design. Steel pins from the former master were used to brace the massive wooden pine tower. Once built and oiled, the work in getting the technical apparatus for the station begun. In 1917, the Marconi Company bought the Universal Radio Wireless Station in Ballybunion and at Newcastle, New Brunswick in Canada, which it closed. Ballybunnan survived for a few years more, when on the 19th of March, 1919, Marconi radio engineer W.T. Ditcham transmitted the first human voice, east-to-west voice speech transmission from Ballybunnan to Lewisburg, Nova Scotia, Canada. The tower again played a vital role in world communications, with a new telephony transmitter installed. When local man Michael Daly, steeplejack, climbed the tower to a height of 500 feet and installed the aerial for W.T. Ditcham, family members have related to me that Michael, before climbing the mast, was given mugs of whiskey due to the height and the fact of the cold temperature at the top of the mast. Michael descends the mast and enters the station house, reporting back to Ditcham who commenced transatlantic communications from Ballybunnan to Lewisburg, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. The company ceased its operations in Ballybunnan in 1924, when it was closed and sold off in lots. Groundsman Jack O'Callaghan has described the closure and the station being sold off for scrap, thus ending the famous history of the wireless station in Ballybunnan, YXQ. I hope you've enjoyed our visit back to the famous wireless station in Ballybunion, YXQ, and its founders and the history associated with it. I have another podcast on the site in relation to the radio station, so check it out. So for now, until we meet again, Slán. Bye. Thanks for listening to our show. Through its people, its heritage and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Bye for now.